0: Doug Jones
1: defeated Roy Moore in Alabama's special Senate election.
0: We reflect on that race, complaints about bias in the Mueller investigation and the tragic suicide of a Kentucky lawmaker. This is Sarah from the left and Beth from the right. You're listening to Pantsy Politics. No shouting, no insults, plenty of nuance.
1: Welcome to another episode, everybody. We still love to get your ratings and reviews for Paint Su Politics and the Nuanced Life. If you're enjoying our new podcast, which you can check out on any podcast player, um, we are also going to continue to ask for Patreon con- contributions. We did a special bonus episode for December where we covered everything from holiday songs to gift giving to our pa- our like changing political philosophy. We really we really covered a wide range of topics. So, if you're interested in that, every Patreon or every patron at the $15 or more level gets access.
0: There is a lot to talk about today, so we'll jump right into the Alabama special election, where I think the first thing to say is that we're just all breathing a collective sigh of relief.
1: I mean, I just want to say that I consistently was hopeful. Like, I was not loudly hopeful, I was not what I would describe as overconfident, but. I had a little flame of hope that was never extinguished. I just believed in my heart of hearts that decency would win. And let me tell you something else I believe, that this is just confirmed for me, that, look, I am not saying that decency always wins in a landslide. I don't believe that. I think that America is a complicated country and people vote for all kinds of reasons. But at the end of the day, I think that, there is a even slight majority of people that will look around and do the right thing. And the, I know what you're all saying. I can hear you. I can literally hear you. Well, not literally. I know what, how to use literally, but I'm just using it for emphasis here. What about Donald Trump? This confirmed for me—I'm just going to go full in on this. This confirmed for me that that election was not fair. For the obvi- for the like regular reasons that elections are complicated, but also because that pl- that piece was close, and Russia interfered and showed millions of Americas mi- millions of Americans false and misleading information. And I think if that had not been the case, it would have been close. It would have been closer than it should have been. But Donald Trump would have not been our president because with we- decency ekes out the victory. I really believe that to my core. Unless there's people freaking interfering and cheating. And this just confirmed that for me. Sorry. I just need to get that off my chest.
0: I think that decency prevailed here and (laughs) it took people showing up to make that decision. Mm -hmm. Because, look, the horrible reality as you look at the exit polling from Alabama, decency prevailed among people of color. It did not prevail among white people. Well, it depends on
1: how you you define prevail, in my personal opinion.
0: Well, what I'm saying is that there are white voters who didn't show up because they were Mm -hmm. disgusted by this race. And there are white voters who showed up and voted for Roy Moore in percentages that are disturbing. And so... The lesson to me from Alabama is that we have to show up to vote even if we're voting against. And that is new for me. I have always wanted my vote to be for someone. I spent a lot of time thinking about this. I don't like the idea of voting against. You know, I like voting for. But what I see in this election result is that sometimes you have to show up and vote against. And a lot of white people did not do that. And a lot of people of color did.
1: I mean, I feel like staying home or doing a write-in is still a moral stance. Do you not feel that way? It's still a vote for Doug Jones in a roundabout way.
0: I'd feel a whole lot better if a lot more white people had had gone to the polls and voted against Roy Moore.
1: Well, now I feel like I'm putting on my Beth hat and I'm saying, we got to meet people where they are. And I'm going to take... The change, the massive change in, like, either state, the turnout, going to take that as a win. The big amount of riding candidates, going to take that as a win. The the big growth in Democratic, like, people were voting for Doug Jones. Like, you know, usually it's like, I think white people vote Republican, like, five to one. This time it was, like, three to one in Alabama. Like, that's good. That's great. And here's, okay, I've just been struggling with this. I've been thinking about this a lot i mean okay so here's let me say this i could watch formation gifts about black women coming to that election all day long all day i could watch them i agree wholeheartedly and i also am pretty much ready to put black women in charge of everything cool with that too because i think there is a there it's i don't even want to call it a unique perspective i don't know if I don't know the word I want. Maybe it is black girl magic. But there is something about being on the other side of both sources of massive privilege, both gender and race, that I do believe opens up this, like, whole other level of understanding that black women have. I wholeheartedly believe and support that. I mean, I call her Mama Oprah. Listen, I'm, I'm on board with that. Here's where I'm struggling though, with some of some, not all, but some of the exit polling takeaways, I guess. Hot takes. Like Kim Kim, friend of the pod, Kim Mellon, posted this awesome, lovely post. And I love her. I think she is smart. And I love a lot of her posts. But there was just a part of me that was like, I don't I don't know how to say this without seeming like I'm a white lady complaining about being attacked. But there is something lost when we decide to treat race and gender as wholly separate things we can just put in different baskets, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Because they interact with each other in so, such hugely complicated ways. Like, yes, I think that white women failed alabama by not turning out in huge overwhelming numbers to put down roy moore yes i believe that white women do protect the men that are the source of their privilege in very harmful ways but the only reason i'm a little hesitant in this whole conversation is because i believe that women of all gender of all races and ethnicity groups do that and we have to talk about that too and we have to acknowledge that too. And do I? Th- and I think I guess I, what I think is like I think there's something lost when one group, instead of saying like, "Hey, we do this, but we have a different perspective on it," when you do it, let's talk about it. Becomes your garbage, get out. You know what I mean? Like I just I hate the way this conversation is going because I think there could be so much more said, and it doesn't have to be like you're okay. It can still be like, you know. You voted this way. Let's talk about why. Because when we link voting to this identity, people get like, and maybe this is why I'm I'm writing this chapter of our book right now. When it becomes a part of your identity, the conversation ends. Like nobody can talk about it. Instead of saying like, you know, I don't think there's a wrong way to vote, but I do think you should be responsible and be able to justify why you voted that way. But if it just becomes about wholly and inextricably linked to your identity, then, like, no one's going to be able to do that fairly. Like, everybody's just going to shut down. And that's why I guess I'm just, as women, you know, acknowledging the massive problems with intersectional feminism. Like, I, I believe that we could have this conversation in a will and productive way and not fall into the old ways of talking about these subjects. I don't know. Did I say any of that coherently?
0: You did. And I don't disagree with any of it. Here's here's what I'm kind of working through. I think I'm looking at this more from a faith perspective than from a political perspective in my disappointment.
1: Mm, I feel that. I feel that. I got you there. Okay.
0: Because I agree with you. I'll take the win. And, you know, I I mean, I write in candidates all the time. I do think it's a principled thing to show up and vote and, and write in someone when you can't in good conscience vote for either of the people on the ballot. So I'm not disparaging anyone who made that choice. I am depressed that right or wrong, the conversation in the country right now is about how Christians support Roy Moore. I'm depressed Mm -hmm. about that. I'm Mm -hmm. depressed about how it and, and white Christians. I don't think that is a good representation of white people or Christians. Mm hmm. And so that's where a lot of my fatigue comes from. I also think it is a really difficult conversation because I struggle with um, the sort of black girl magic conversation and still honoring black women and not saying, Now you're responsible to come help us with everything. Yeah, I I think there's a really, there's a tension for me. And I know that I'm going to get some of that wrong as I talk about it. And I'm going to say things that aren't, that that don't honor black women the way they want to be honored. Because truthfully, there aren't enough black women in my life. The ones that are in my life, I adore and think the world of. And I absolutely see the wisdom that comes from, as you said, being on the, oppressed end of two very powerful oppressive forces i don't want to caricature black women though yeah and i and i don't want to act like they have some responsibility and i don't want to do that to white women either so i share your frustration about that and and i do think that it's just a really hard conversation to have but i am distressed looking at the numbers that more white people and more white people of faith didn't show up to say, no, this is absolutely unacceptable to us because I think the country needs that message right now. The other thing that has shifted my perspective on this since we really last had a deep discussion about it is Donald Trump got elected. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and I didn't think that was possible. And when I fell asleep watching the Alabama results coming in, when I was pretty convinced, Doug Jones had just pulled ahead. And when you looked at the map, the the rest of the returns to come in, I felt really comfortable going to sleep that he was going to win. And I said to my husband, because he was like, do you feel better now? And I said, I don't feel better now because it was close. And, and there is a little piece of me, and this is maybe the Sarah influence in me coming out. I, I kind of wanted this to be like, the whole state of Alabama versus zero, you know what I mean? Or, or, you know, 90% Doug Jones, 10% write-ins. I just can't believe that, that it was close and that it just hurts me. And I think it hurts me more because of the, the dynamic of faith that Roy Moore injected into this race and how many people, how many just average people are buying that. I think that's going to have really long-lasting consequences.
1: I mean, I, I have a deep will of pragmatism. So I look at that and I think, that was Alabama, y'all. Alabama. That's a dang miracle because it really wasn't that close for a Democrat to win in Alabama. You know, I just, I think for me, and also I feel like my my optimism is finding more and more places to rest with the increasing pressure on Donald Trump, with his accusers more out there, with him, with... Okay. Put a pin in Senator Gillibrand. I got some things to say about that. Um, With that whole exchange, like, that... It's not... I thought, oh, it it seemed to me when he was elected, like, we weren't going to talk about it anymore. Like, we were going to follow the... Well, he won, and so people decided it wasn't a big deal. And it, it was like, Me Too was existing in a separate universe. And slowly but surely... It's creeping up the steps of the White House, and I'm here for it. But with regards to the the whole, like, the exit polling and the breakdown, like, to me, a victory is not white women vote 98% as a block. The victory is when black women have a choice. And, like, when they feel like our political parties, there's such, like, there's a difference between our political parties and when black women can vote, like, 30 30 30 just like the rest of us you know what i mean like that to me is what i want to see i don't want to see everybody having to come down on a hammer because the choices are so terrible i want to see enough black women and people other people of color and all perspectives in both parties so that they don't have to vote as a block at 98 percent. that's ridiculous that's not like that's not freedom of choice in the voting booth like you're doing something wrong if one group has to vote like that like that's not fair that's ridiculous and Yes, absolutely. Part, like, the number one step is more, both parties putting more people of all perspectives and backgrounds and races and particularly gender in positions of power. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But, like, let's not end there. Let's, like, just get to a place where people don't have to vote as a block as 98%.
0: Yeah, where you can have actual ideological diversity Mm -hmm. instead of people feeling like they're voting to just baseline protect their liberties. Their human decency,
1: yes. Absolutely.
0: Well, I don't know. You know, a lot of ink is being spilled right now on what this means for Donald Trump. It's hard for me to see this meaning anything other than this was the worst person who's run for office in a very long time.
1: But, you know, I think that that... And there's been so much opining about the comparisons between Scott Brown and like I'm not going to say Martha what's her name was a Roy Moore but she was a terrible candidate too not terrible on that level but pretty terrible that Scott Brown beat and so I I think the the um, similarities are there and I think the fact that Mitch McConnell you know chained himself to a tree in order to get Scott Brown to be able to vote on Obamacare and they're going to push this tax bill through is just one more brick in his giant wall of hypocrisy.
0: That's a good segue to Mm. the House Judiciary Committee's hearing yesterday. I cannot get well. I feel like I've been sick for a month, and so I was at home yesterday, absolutely miserable, Watching the House Judiciary Committee, Chad came in the living room. And he was like, Beth, I cannot allow you to watch cable news all day. You have to stop <laughs> watching cable news. But I was really captivated by the Rosenstein question, the Rod Rosenstein's testimony in a bad way mm-hmm. as I watched Republican senator, not senator, Republican representative after representative essentially make the argument that if you don't like donald trump you can't investigate donald trump impartially
1: and so what does that mean only republicans can investigate republicans do we really think that's going to work is that what they're making the argument that in a republican presidency the fbi should be only staffed with republicans like what that let's keep let's follow this train where y'all going
0: I think it goes even farther than that, right? Because I think they would, based on the language that they were using yesterday, I think they would say that never Trump Republicans would be disqualified. I I think you might need to own the hat if you are able to be on this team. And then they're saying things like, Daryl Issa says, I mean, the goal is to hang Donald Trump, right? Why would you use that verb? Why why would you use that verb? You're in the House of Representatives. Do better. Do better than that. Are you kidding me? the the whole conversation was so discouraging they want a second special counsel appointed to investigate the first special counsel oh come let's on let's follow no. that thought then we're going to have a third and a fourth this is just the most wasteful conversation i've ever seen and here you have rod rosenstein who has certainly made decisions with which i disagree saying i see absolutely no basis to investigate the investigation None. That's why we have an inspector general who has a staff and a budget. That's how these text messages surfaced. So if you haven't been following this along, at some point months ago, text messages were discovered between two Department of Justice employees who were romantically involved with one another, in which a person who was in the Mueller investigation team said that Trump is a moron. Raise your hand if you haven't said that in That's some context. Saying, fun fact, Bob Corker says that all the time.
1: Obviously, Tillerson said it. Like, people say that. That is a thing people say.
0: That is a thing Trump supporters say. Yeah, I
1: mean, seriously. I've heard people
0: who voted earnestly for him and would vote for him again say, yeah, he's kind of a moron. I mean, I don't mean to do name-calling, but that—that that is not an outrageous sentiment in America in 2017. And anyway, then they start going into, look how many people on Team Mueller actually gave money to Hillary Clinton or have given money to Democrats in the past. It seems to me that you're trying at some point to latch on to a fiction of impartiality at a degree that's impossible for humans or take out of the voting and democratic process everyone who might ever confront any kind of political issue. I don't think that's what we want either. Can
1: I just say, House Republicans, including my own representative, Jamie Comer, meet me at the mic, um, y'all, do you honestly believe that this is how you are going to improve the reputation, even approval rating of Congress? that follow, feeding your base into the depths of craven partisanship is going to do any favors to you, your seat, your party, or your control of this house. Honestly, I'm asking you, just on the most pragmatic level, we don't have to get big here, we don't even talk about philosophy, history, the impact of your legacies, anything, just on the most like
0: 2018 level, you think this going to get it won for you? Seriously? The hearing was so depressing because you would alternate between Republican representative doing this dance to lay a basis to fire Robert Mueller, which I think is the most irresponsible, unethical thing that these guys could be doing, followed by fiery, impassioned speech extolling the virtue of the Department of Justice from Democratic representatives. And I'm not saying that that's equivalent to what the Republicans are doing. It's absolutely not. But it was also unappealing and made you think, why do we send any of these people to Washington? Truly, what are they doing up there? So before
1: we, because I really think that's probably an excellent place to end that conversation. Before we move on to the sad news um, in our state of Kentucky, we wanted to follow up on a few um, big national news stories. And I got to say something about Kristen Gillibrand before we move on. Um, So net neutrality, going to happen, probably going to happen today. We had had some really good feedback from our last conversation about net neutrality about making sure and distinguishing between the Internet and, like, the content on the Internet and Internet service providers um, like Comcast, like the people who really want um, to overturn net neutrality. So, in theory, they can charge us more or less depending on the speed and what we're accessing. So, get excited about that. Um, And that was a very important distinction to make. Um, And then also the tax bill. Seems that they've come to some sort of agreement, although it doesn't sound like they've got the Senate on board yet. And there's problems because John McCain's in the hospital and uh, Mississippi senator has not voted in like three weeks because he's real old and never there. So should be interesting. Can't wait to see how that shakes out. And we'll try to cover that in more depth on Tuesday. So um, what would you think about that tweet that Donald Trump sent about Senator Kirst- Kirsten Gillibrand? Beth?
0: I had... Three simultaneous thoughts. My first thought was, why is he consistently so horrible? Which is not a nuanced thought. I'm just being honest with you about my reactions. My second thought was, Christmas came early for Senator Gillibrand. Right? That's exactly what I thought. My third thought was, Donald Trump knows that he just gave her a big present Because this is the kind of conflict that he loves to stoke. And I think at this point, he's just into the backlash. He's just into being the regressive figure. He knows that doing this keeps his people riled up and keeps her people riled up. And all that conflict is his entertainment. Those were my three simultaneous thoughts about the tweet.
1: Um, yeah, I'm ready to go ahead and nominate Senator Gillibrand now. I'm just going to be real honest about my lack of nuance with regards to her. Um, I'm I'm like totally good with that. Let's just do it. Let's skip all the Bernie business. I don't do that again. So I'm I'm like really cool with just go ahead and doing that now. Um, and I feel like when he does stuff like this, it's pretty much what it's happening. Like I noticed when Doug Jones won. Um, Twitter put together, like, celebrities and politicians congratulate drug Jones. And it was like... Uh- we are special breakfast people here at Pansu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain Terms and conditions apply. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp.
0: Can I get something off my chest?
1: Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college, y'all. He's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash Pantsuit. Um, it was maybe Bill Clinton, Biden, Hillary, and then the next Democrat was, no, it was Bernie, then it was Senator Gillibrand, and I was like, yep, let's keep doing this. Let's, let us Let's get her name out there. Let's get everybody used to her face. That's great. But uh, again, the level of just disgusting sexism, the she do anything for donation, the bill and crooked, just, oh, it's so infuriating. But I have to say, like, there was a part of the reason I am, like, just going all in on Gillibrand is, like, it just felt so good for it not, and I listen. Nobody is going to doubt my devotion to Hillary Clinton. But there was just this sense of like, oh, he's going after somebody that's not hobbled. You know what I mean? Like that can go back that she's so strong. She's so smart. She's so sort of awesome on this particular issue. She doesn't have – she's not married to Bill Clinton. Like there was just a part of me that's like, oh, this is what it – and I I sort of know what that felt like because that's what it was like with Obama. Like Obama could just – you know, he always took the high road. He didn't have these um, th- these skeletons in his closet, all this stuff like it just felt good um, on that level. But also
0: just, oh, man, I guess it remains to be seen what this does for Senator Gillibrand since there's a long time between now and the nominating process. It definitely feels like she is gaining momentum for a Democratic nomination. It, I think that Donald Trump would probably love that. So we'll see. It just continues to I, – I do think he knows what he's doing when he sends these tweets.
1: I don't know. I think he has a – I always fluctuate between this. We had this conversation before. I think he likes having enemies. He likes to have a villain. I don't think he fully ever understands the impact of what he does as president and the political impact and, I mean, look—he nominated two people that lost in Alabama, so or supported two people that lost in Alabama. So I don't think he's this—I don't think he's a political genius. I do think that he is um, really good at con- at controlling the narrative. But I think it—we're seeing now with his failure to get anything through, with his bottoming out approval ratings—that that doesn't always work in politics, and d- certainly doesn't work in governing. And there's a part of me that's like, yeah, he's gonna—he's. The people that read his tweets and that believe him are going to hate her now and she's going to get added up there with Nancy and Chuck, and that's fine. But, like, those people are never going to vote for her. It doesn't matter. Like, the people who are going to discount her wholly and completely because she is a female and she's a Democrat or whatever, like, I'm not talking to them anyway, but, like, there's a whole broad swath of people, um, particularly sort of moderate, independent swing voters, that, like, just need to start hearing her name, and I'm cool with
0: that, you know? Well, let's talk about Kentucky for a second, bringing it way back close to home. We are learning that Representative Dan Johnson in our Kentucky state legislature committed suicide this week, three days after an article was published about accusations that he sexually abused a teenager. He was a pastor of a church he has always been a controversial figure. yeah. And prior to his suicide, wrote a, a really disturbing message on his Facebook page, denying that he had done these things, claiming that he has post-traumatic stress disorder and that it has claimed his life, telling his family that he loved them. It's just awful. There's really nothing to say about it other than it's awful. And I'm so sorry for all the people who loved him that this has happened. I'm sorry for the woman who has accused him because I can't imagine the grief Mm -hmm. that she must be feeling for both what happened to her and now what has happened since then. And I'm sorry for the people who reported this story because even though I believe that they did it accurately, appropriately, and did exactly what they're supposed to be doing, we're human beings and our emotions are complicated and... There's just an unbelievable amount of tragedy in the wake of any suicide, and particularly this one.
1: The only thing I would add is that I think I can I can feel people who don't live in Kentucky, um, it becomes this sort of... I think it could add fuel to the, like, oh, my gosh, we're moving too fast with this Me Too yeah. thing. And let me just add some layers to that because I truly don't believe that that's what happened here. This guy, he put... I mean... He was very incendiary from the minute he stepped on the scene. Like, he was posting things about Obama and Michelle Obama as apes. The Republican Party tried to get him to drop out. Like, and I say that not to to say don't feel sorry for his family. or I just, I think that every, his sort of, the the accusations against him, his entire candidacy, the way he would respond in public, the Facebook message, all this to me is about... This was a deeply troubled individual this uh you know the tragedy of the suicide you know i i just i I don't think it's as simple as he got accused of something couldn't stand it and killed himself i think that he was a deeply troubled man and all his actions way before we even knew about this accusation lead me to believe that and so i think the the problems he had ran very, very deep, and we're not just about being accused of sexual assault, I guess is what I I just want to clarify that, like, there's way more to
0: this guy than just the accusation of sexual assault. I think there's always way more to every person than whatever the headline is, and that's yeah, exactly. a huge part of what we talk about all the time. And, and here's the other reality, because my initial reaction to this was, this is a tough story, because I do think it will lend mm-hmm. to the – Argument that Me Too is going too hard and too fast. And and what I want to say is probably some really awful things are going to happen because of that movement. And a lot of awful things have happened because this movement hasn't existed. Exactly. People suffer. People commit suicide. People endure all manner of horrible things because they haven't confronted a person who has abused them. And horrible things are going to happen to people who are accused as well. Mm -hmm. And, And I hate that. I just think that any real change, there's a lot of collateral damage. And when I said that, just as those words are coming out of my mouth, that feels so cold. And I don't mean it in a cold way at all. My heart breaks about this. And my heart breaks for every person who is telling a story or hearing a story about themselves or hearing a story about someone that they've cared about for a long time and making sense of how much this doesn't comport with the person they thought they knew. I am so deeply sorry that all of this is happening. And I think it's necessary.
1: So I texted some of my friends this week and I said, I'm realizing that like the Me Too movement is really bringing out my sort of inner Madame DeFarge. Like, there's a part of me that, like, I'm just being very vulnerable and honest. There is a part of me that, like, every day, like, I want a new head on the spike. Mario Batali, sure, tell me more. You know, like, let's hear it. I want, to he- I want it all out there. I want them all to resign. Obviously, I don't want anybody to die, clearly. But, you know, I just, I feel that, I feel a hunger. Like, I want it cleaned out. I want everybody gone. And at the same time, as I was, like, recognizing this about myself, um, Selma Hayek's story came out in which she um, told in really heartbreaking detail about her relationship with Harvey Weinstein. And I read that shared on a page I I follow and I love that um, is a community that surrounds the work of Anne Helen Peterson, one of my favorite writers on the Internet, called Celebrity Gossip Academic Style. And what bugged me about it is that there was this, you know, moment where everybody was like, so you know, everybody was, oh my gosh, so heartbreaking for her. But like two months ago, Selma Hyatt got in this interaction with Jessica Williams, um a young black comedian, and she interrupted her and talked over Jessica Williams, and everybody was sort of rightly frustrated to all the way to outraged with her. And that page had this very much like, done with her. And I'm like, okay, so now can we look back on that interaction with a little bit of grace? And can we see that like When people say or do something that upsets us politically, gender, race, like it's complicated. Like Morgan Spurlock, a person I really like, I like his work, wrote a very honest assessment of himself. Now people are mad. They're like, this was just self, you know, this was just self, self self-involved. And I'm like, can we just make space for all of it? Like, I'm just trying to make space within myself, space for like, yeah, I have some righteous fury. I want, I want... The, the sort of hands of justice to move quickly and decisively. I want people to resign and not have those positions of power. And I don't mind having conversations about why men are like this. I don't want to just discard them as monsters. Like, I want to say, yes, you resign. You're, we're done. You're done. Your access and power are through. But we can have a conversation about what caused you to be like this without making excuses for your behavior. Like, we can talk honestly about both things like we can come hard down come hard come down hard on white women in alabama and also have a conversation about why they did that and they're not like monsters like i just the the men are garbage white women are garbage like that whole selma hiap is garbage because she interrupted jessica williams like i just really want to stop that like i don't i think both things can coexist i wish we could find a place for both things to coexist
0: We have to, or we're going to continue down the road that we're on to really detrimental consequences. Yeah. We have to find a way to understand that people are complicated, that people are more, as you've said a lot, people are more than the worst thing they've ever done. People are more than the worst attitude that they hold. Mm Mm-hmm. And people are more than the best of themselves, too. Yeah. As you were talking about Senator Gillibrand, I thought, gosh, I know it's fun to get really excited about someone. It's also heartbreakingly difficult when you've gotten really excited about someone and you see other pieces of them, as you yeah. undoubtedly will if she runs for president. We, Our media is fed on building people up and then tearing them down and then doing it all over again. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've adopted that in our personal lives to a degree that is detrimental to our relationships. People disappoint us all the time. People we deeply love disappoint us. And I think we're getting worse at realizing that that can happen and we still love them because our cultural dynamic is, nope, if somebody disappoints me, they're canceled. And we've got to work with that.
1: And just to get deeply philosophical for a moment,
0: we disappoint ourselves, Absolutely. and I think that's why it's so painful. We disappoint ourselves, and we are more than one thing at a time, and that gets back to—I mean, it's all circular because I think the reason we vote as we do, we don't like to be wrong, and so if I ever supported—if I ever supported Roy Moore, or I have spent my life railing about abortion. I make that so personal to me. I don't want to disappoint myself. I don't want to question whether I might have missed something somewhere. And so I go hard at it because I'm always going to be either building up or tearing down. Mm -hmm. And there are moments for all of us that just need to be moments of reflection. And I think this kind of segues to some feedback that we got. So we'll take a short break and come back and talk about that feedback.
1: So I don't know what people do when they don't have a Middle East expert on call like we do here at Pantsy Politics with our amazing Carrie Anderson. But she's phenomenal and often we I'm emailing her and I'm like, "Okay, this is makes sense to me. This is my instinct. What do you think?" It's just She's amazing. So she emailed us back about Jerusalem and our discussion about that, and she said, I appreciate your discussion about the situation, especially Sarah's expression of empathy for the Palestinian position, which was absolutely correct. And talking with several Palestinian friends in the last few days, I've heard a total lack of hope, a sense that this decision has killed any hope. For some, it's sort of like, well, now my friends and family who still had hope will realize how foolish they've been. My word's not theirs, but summarizing what I'm hearing. For others, it's more like, this is the final nail in the coffin of the dwindling hope to which I clung. Utter hopelessness is an accurate description. Deep, abiding anger as well.
0: Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed. It could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Carrie also talked about people giving up on the two-state solution as a real possibility and that there's general happiness in Israeli media but tempered by concerns that the two-state solution might be off the table at this point. She also said that, I mentioned a New York Times article that asked the question whether this would allow President Trump to ask for some big concession from Israel, and Carrie and other foreign policy analysts that she talks with think that is very unlikely, that it might set him up to ask for a very tiny concession, that Israel can then make a lot of hay about it being a big deal, but that would be... Fairly meaningless on the Palestinian side. And here's how she ended her message to us. And I really loved this. She said, I think power differentials matter a lot in terms of responsibility. And there is a massive power differential in this context in this conflict, which I think puts greater responsibility on Israel and the U.S. Not total responsibility, but a greater share of it. And all this talk about recognizing reality means accepting the idea that the strong win and the weak are screwed, and that's all good, whether talking about Israel-Palestine, Crimea, the Rohingya, refugees, sexual assault and harassment, etc., etc. That is true. Telling you, Carrie always kills it. We also received a message from Aaron, and this, I think lines up nicely with the conversation that we were just having about people not just being heroes and villains and not wanting to be wrong and whether we can allow for some change in ourselves. Aaron was disappointed that we gave short shrift in our discussion of the decision to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital to the fact that previous administrations, both Republican and Democrat have promised to do this very thing and have not done it. And that at, at, Whether it's good or bad, President Trump is being consistent. He promised that he was going to do this, and he did it. And he's done that a lot. He said he was going to do this in his campaign, and he has either done it or started down the path of doing it or tried to do it during his administration. So I wrote back to Aaron because I was working on a section of our book about how I think campaign promises in and of themselves are more of a problem than the failure to fulfill those promises. I would much rather someone say, here's what I'm thinking as a candidate. But I'm open to learning yeah. more because there's a lot that I can't know today in my seat and then change their minds. And so we were kind of going back and forth about that. And I wondered what your thoughts were, Sarah. Aaron Aaron said... It would be refreshing to have someone point out that these very same campaign promises were made by previous presidents, both Democrat and Republican, and they failed to take action to fulfill their promise. I believe that repeated failures to fulfill campaign promises alienates voters and trust in our political system. Failure to fulfill promises because both sides are partisan versus legislating for the greater good. How do you even define the greater good? It depends on your point of view. Created the environment for people to be so dissatisfied. It allows for a candidate Trump to become a President Trump. Right or wrong, President Trump followed through, and I don't know if that should be lauded or condemned. I certainly do not agree with everything he is doing. However, I'm trying to take the approach of good news, bad news. Who knows what this presidency time will tell. I think that's fair. And then in response to my question about campaign promises generally, you know, Erin talked about how people are really hungry for decisive leadership. And I think she's right about that. And I also think, um, as she characterized my thought as more aspirationally, And I do think the more aspirational approach is for us to elect people because we believe that they have the characteristics of a good leader. And one of those characteristics should be some flexibility and some curiosity and openness to making the best decisions possible based on all of the information available at a given time.
1: You know, I was very careful when I ran for office that I never made promises because I feel like beyond how it makes the elect I I just think the long-term effect even if you keep the promises 75 percent of the time is inevitably it keeps it creates distrust between the elected officials and the electorate because you're not going to be able to deliver every time and so you know I was always really careful just not to do that even if I agreed with them even if I wanted to do it tomorrow especially in a position where it doesn't matter. It's a democracy. There's no position when you have total control. So I just, yeah, I got a problem with it.
0: Well, a good conversation to have in the United States right now is what are we electing people to do? Mm-hmm. And that's the conversation that was happening in Alabama. Are you electing Roy Moore despite a long litany of things because you believe he will vote with your side of a party And you agree with what your side of a party is doing at a particular moment in time. So are you electing just a pure vote? Which is what Donald Trump told you to do. Right. Or are you electing someone who you want to act as an individual with free will based on a set of characteristics that you trust? And I would rather do the latter.
1: And it goes back to the conversation we always have, which is... Are do we want our elected officials to be representatives, or do we want them to be trustees? Are we electing them solely and completely to represent our interest, or are we electing them to lead our country and our states or our city? You know what I mean? Like, so for example, we have a traffic issue in Paducah. People are really upset about it. But everyone thinks they have the common sense solution. Like, every, everyone agrees there's a problem, but everybody's like, this will solve it. This will solve it. I counted 11 things that people think will solve it. So which one do you want me to do? Like, at a certain point, you have to have trust in your elected officials to not solely represent the will of the people because the will of the people is often in conflict with one another. You know what I mean? Like, often you what you think is fulfilling the campaign promise is not going to be what somebody else thinks is fulfilling the campaign promise. And so you have to let people you trust will be decent and do the right thing and do the right thing for the most people or do the right thing for the country or do the right thing in the long term or do the right thing by protecting minority interests. It's going to be different every time, but, like, if you can't depend on their basic human decency to assess sort of the impact of that decision and not just blindly follow the majority will which you could do like like I've often said if you want that elect robots there are robots that'll tally that up we can all vote online so do we really think that's going to be lead to the best government because I don't because people voted in California to exclude black people from their neighborhood and they they people vote as a majority will to do all kinds of terrible things and if you want to like get down to our founding fathers they knew that they did not trust the majority will and so let's talk about that you know what I mean
0: well, also I just want people to be thoughtful about things. I don't have time to cast an informed vote on every vote that needs to be taken in our country through my iPhone, yeah. right? Yeah, I, need, I need more information. I need to think about things. This is why I think lobbying is really important because people who are going to be affected by the details of legislation should be involved in the process of figuring out what those details are. They have better information than I have. There has to be a balance It's always frustrating for me in the business context when I've worked on a problem for a very long time and I take my summary of the problem and recommended solutions to a decision maker who's thought about it for five minutes Mm -hmm. and questions my work or makes a different decision. Part of that is my authority, my authority thing too. I just don't like, I don't like that. I'm working on that in myself, (laughs) but, but either way, you know, you very frequently are Are in a situation like that where someone knows a whole lot and somebody else is making a decision who doesn't know that much. And that's part of the problem and the benefit of our democracy. There's also benefit to someone taking a fresh look, someone who isn't so entrenched in the details, who can ask a question that maybe didn't occur to the person who's super close to the problem. So that balance on both sides is really key. And I think when we start to talk about our legislators like they are just pure numbers, mm-hmm. we lose the balance that our, that the legislative system is supposed to accomplish.
1: All right. Well, thank you for joining us for another episode of Pantsuit Politics and loving me even though I exposed my inner Madame Defarge. Um, we hope to be back next week with another episode of Pantsuit Politics. Again, you can still uh, check out our new podcast, The Nuance Life, and leave us a rating or reviews on both. Until next week, keep it nuanced, y'all.
0: Thank you so much to our executive producers, Nicholas, Chad, Tracy, Leslie, Sabrina, and George.
1: You can join us on social media, Instagram and Facebook at Pantsuit Politics and on Twitter at Politic, no S. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com or reviews
0: are always helpful and you can leave one through the Apple Podcast app. Thank you to Dante Lima, the composer of our Fancy Politics Theme Music.